All right, if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, open with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 19. Uh, you can find the passage for the sermon today in your bulletin. It's on page 582 of the Blue Bibles if you'd like to follow along. I will refer to a couple places that are close by to the text that is in your bulletin. Might be nice to have your Bibles open, but as it works best uh, for you to follow along. So this is the second sermon in our series on Christmas with Isaiah. And we're kind of asking the question as if we were standing next to Isaiah, saying to Isaiah, what do you see? What do you hear in terms of this coming holy messianic king who you're prophesying to us is coming in the world? Now, last week, our answer to that question from Isaiah was, I see something transformational. That is to say, I see one coming into the world who is going to change everything, change every aspect of the world and every aspect of life itself. Now, last week, as an intro to this, I kind of gave us five principles that are guiding us along in this study, and I'm going to repeat them right now, but I'm going to do it and only define them with one sentence each. So just you have them in front of you once uh, again. So here are our guiding principles uh, for this time in Isaiah. First of all, inspiration. Okay? This is the Word of God. What we are receiving from the prophetic Word of Isaiah is, in fact, the God-breathed Word of God. We just confess that in the Nicene Creed together, that it was the Holy Spirit who inspired the prophets and who spoke to us through the prophets. Inspiration. Number two, illumination. That that same spirit is at work in our very midst, in our hearts and in our minds today, to illumine, to give light to us so that we can, by his work, understand the words that are given to us in Scripture, so that the words that I'm saying right now don't just bounce off somewhere, but in fact sink into us and are part of us understanding the will and desire of God for our lives and what we are to believe about him. So inspiration, and then number two is illumination. Number three is representation. And the point of the word representation was to say that in prophetic scripture, as well as other parts of scripture, you have a great deal of poetry, you have a great deal of metaphorical language that is used within these sections. And when we look then at these prophecies that are being spoken to us, we don't want to be absolutely wooden with them. They are absolutely truly the word of God, but we want to allow the words and the images to be what they are intended to be. If poetry, then poetry. If uh, metaphor, then uh, metaphor. Point number four, principle number four, consolidation. Okay, the idea of consolidation is that as Isaiah is prophesying about this coming holy messianic king, he is prophesying as if he's looking at an entire mountain range. And in this mountain range that exists, he's seeing all of the work and the person of the Messiah that will take place. But oftentimes it is put together. We now, if you will, in the midst of the mountain range, can understand some of the peaks better than others. And likewise, we can see distance between peaks that you couldn't see 700 years before all of that took place. Okay, so we got four so far. We've got inspiration, illumination, representation, consolidation, and the fifth principle that's guiding us is consummation. Consummation. Isaiah lived 700 years before Christ, a time of prophetic expectation, prophetic anticipation. We now live in the time of consummation. 
And so we are able to understand the words of Isaiah, not only as if those are the only words that are spoken to us, but in light of the fact that Christ has come into the world, the fact that we have the New Testament to read, the, the Gospels to read. So when we look at Isaiah, we can fill in, if you will, because we have Christ himself who has come. So keep those five things in mind as we work through this. I will not go through them every Sunday, but I wanted to at least one more time. Today, we again stand next to Isaiah. Tell us what you see, and the answer today is something global. Now, hear these words I'm picking up from verse 19 of chapter 19. This is the God-breathed word. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender, and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Great God and Heavenly Father, thank you that you've done it. You've done it through your Son. Thank you for the Spirit communicating it to Isaiah in advance and now speaking to us through those same words. Guide our thoughts, our meditations today, our ears. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that I think we all love about Christmas is that it begins in such a small way, with such intimate portraits, with announcements to a few select people, with a conception, with a quiet birth, a baby, and a manger. The first Christmas was small, and it was personal. And Isaiah himself can reflect on things and look forward to things that are small in their beginning as well. We saw this last week when we looked at Isaiah chapter 11 and, and the very first words, a shoot. A shoot is something very small, right? A shoot here coming out of a stump is just a very small, fragile little thing. And then in Isaiah 11, uh, Isaiah can talk about a child leading animals. He can talk about a, a child who's still nursing, putting his hand over top of the cobra's nest, or uh, a child who's been weaned, who's putting their hand over top of the adder's hole. So he can talk about very small things. You know, Isaiah 9, to us, a child is born, a son is given. Or he can go all the way small 
by saying in Isaiah chapter 7, a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. Isaiah can rejoice in that which is small, but neither Isaiah nor the gospel writers will allow their readers in any way to contain or to restrain the universal reign of this coming Messiah. Big things come from small beginnings. Now, I suspect that if I was an Israelite and I was living at this time, some 700 years before the birth of Christ, that what I would want a prophet to tell me is something like this. Now, mind you, prophets never tell you exactly what you want to hear. Um, but if I could ask the prophet, you know, or if I could say, this is what I would like to hear, I'd like to hear something like this. I'd like to hear from the prophet that the time has come for the judgment of God to be delivered upon the wicked, upon the wicked nations that are surrounding Israel, uh, that God's just judgment would be meted out upon them, upon the oppressors, and that for Israel there would be a time of reformation, of restoration, that would take place in preparation for this coming Messiah and then through this coming Messiah, this messianic king as well. But what God says through his prophet, and this is what we're considering today, what God says through his prophet is that kind of thinking is too small. Okay, the, the kind of thinking that would like to have a prophetic message, the rest of you were wiped out while we, Israel, are going to be ascendant. Uh, you were laid low, we are brought high. That kind of thinking is too small. Now look with me at the front of your bulletin for a moment. On the front of your bulletin, there are three verses from Isaiah. They're kind of collapsed together. I'm looking at the one right in the middle that begins, he says. It's Isaiah 49, 6. It says this, he says, this is the father speaking to his servant, the son, it is too light a thing, or too small a thing, it is too light a thing, too small a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved one of ones of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. If you're thinking, as a person sitting next to Isaiah, that what you really want is for Israel to be exalted and everybody else to be laid low, then God's message is too small. Your, your idea is too little and you need to expand that idea. In fact, the Messianic Kingdom is going to be global, worldwide, universal, and international in the reign of this Messiah. And folks, the fact that we would have been thinking too small is really good news for us who are here today. In our New Testament reading from uh, Luke chapter 2, we read this reaction of Simeon, right? Simeon is in Jerusalem, he's in the heart of Israel, and he's waiting for this promised redemption to come, this promised consolation of Israel to come. And when he has the child in his arms, he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, and listen to this, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. 
Israel not left out for glory to your people Israel, but a light of revelation for all of the nations prepared in their sight. And as evidence to this fact, we have evidence to it right in the Christmas stories themselves because then the wise men come from the east. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Yes, he's king of the Jews, but others, other nations are now coming to worship the king of the Jews as indicative of a worldwide plan that God has that is being filled out. Now, this same expectation for a global development of this salvation bubbles up throughout Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 11 that we looked at last week, one of, the, one of the last verses or the last couple of verses that we saw in that passage include words that uh, the, the, the knowledge of the Lord will extend over the entirety of the earth as the waters cover the seas. And then after that we read that, that the signal, that the, the royal ensign, that the flag of the root of Jesse is going to be lifted up so that the, the nations can come and inquire of him, can come unto him. There are some other great verses on the front of your bulletin, but perhaps no passage in Isaiah is as striking on this theme as the one that is before us today. Now, if you're a little bit unfamiliar with scriptural language, if you're a little bit unfamiliar with Isaiah, it's okay that this may have seemed obscure to you, uh, that the references may have been a little bit obscure. But I'm going to be able to unpack it for us today in a way that I hope will make this as clear as it actually is. I, I don't know if it is possible, given, given the reality that we who are here today know how this story comes to an end. I don't know if it's possible, but I hope we can taste just a bit of how shocking this passage would have been if we were listening to Isaiah speak it in whatever, 700-something B.C. We'll give that a shot if we can possibly imagine us. But Isaiah, tell us what you see and what you hear. Now, let's set our passage in a context. Given the time and the circumstances, it does not surprise us to hear Isaiah say that he sees coming judgment and the wrath of God poured out upon sinful nations. That doesn't surprise us. In the book of Isaiah uh, and prior to our passage today, a number of nations are addressed specifically because of their sin. But two in our passage and two throughout the book are highlighted particularly. And they are Assyria to the north, or if you will, the, to the northeast of uh, Israel and Egypt, sorry, from your perspective, to the south and the southwest of Israel. Those are the two that are particularly addressed. Assyria is the present threat. They are the present enemy of Israel. And in fact, Assyria is going to invade exactly during this time the northern kingdom of Israel. They're going to destroy the northern kingdom and carry the people off as captives. They are a present danger for the people of Israel. So, for example, you don't have to turn here with me. I'm just going to look at the uh, first few first verse or uh, first few verses or in Isaiah chapter 10. When we hear Isaiah say something like this, 
when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. When we hear Isaiah say, hey, hey, judgment is coming on the king of Assyria and the people of Assyria, we can't help but be glad about that if we're listening to Isaiah, to rejoice in it. And if rejoice is too strong of a word for you, we can't help but give thanks for it. This is an oppressive, evil, wicked people. And so in giving thanks for God's justice, we are recognizing the sovereignty and the rightness of what God has done. And then, then there's Egypt. So that's the present enemy. Egypt is the old enemy of Israel. But for Isaiah's people, Isaiah's time, there's a temptation. There's a temptation because Assyria is coming down from the north. There's a temptation to go to Egypt and say, hey, listen, we know, and this was the reality, you guys hate the Assyrians as well. You guys are afraid of the Assyrians coming down into Egypt. Let's form an alliance together against the incoming Assyrians. And Isaiah is saying, don't do that. Do not go to the old enemy for help. Look to me for help. Don't go to that old enemy for help because that old enemy is a wicked old enemy. And so Isaiah says, not only am I going to judge Assyria, but I'm going to judge Egypt as well. The first two verses of this chapter that we're in, chapter 19, say this, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them, and I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom, and again, we can't help but say, listen, that's the old, the wicked enemy. They're about to get their just deserts from God, and it's about time. It's about time that judgment be rendered against Egypt. But here's the rub. The prophets, and Isaiah in particular, they don't restrict judgment to the nations who are around Israel. Instead, Israel is at the center of the target of the judgment. Israel's not off to the side somewhere, not neglected in the judgment, but rather at the very center of it. And so it's not just judgment on wicked nations around us. Isaiah begins with these very words, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children, I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The judgment that is coming is against a rebellious child, a child that has turned its back on its maker, its father, and is now going to bear the consequences of that, and Isaiah prophesies about that. So we hear from a prophet, we hear about judgment. It is deserved and it is distributed universally contrary to what we might like to hear. We might like to hear it on the enemies and hear something better for us. But then what happens in Isaiah is we hear another word from the prophet, a word of renewal, a word of restoration, a word of transformation, 
A word of redemption, a word of salvation, a, a word of hope comes out from the prophet as well as this word of judgment. And as we saw last week, the heart of that story, the heart of the new story of redemption, of hope coming up, begins in Israel. Right? It's, it's the garden that had been cut down, that had been chopped down, and only a stump is remaining. But the hope comes out of Israel. It comes out of the stump of Jesse. Out of the very royal heart that is Israel, there's the hope springing forth. It comes out of Israel itself. What we see then in the passage before us is that it doesn't, this hope, stop at Israel's borders. Isaiah sees a day coming when lines and allegiances are remapped. He says there's going to have to be a new understanding of these things. What Isaiah is seeing, seeing then here in this passage is part of the mountain range. A glorious part of the scope of the mountain range that is the coming Messiah into the world. And the marker for us in our text here today is the phrase, in that day. Okay, so if you looked at it and if you read along with me, you saw that in that day heads off verse 19, verse 23, verse 24. And if you have your Bibles open, you can see that there are two in that days that precede the three that I have read for us. In that day, what we see here is that as thorough... And as comprehensive as the coming judgment will be, it's actually not utter and complete destruction. It's not final judgment for all. In fact, what it is, is a judgment that awakens. Okay, now I'm going to go quickly through the first two that I didn't read for us. Uh, they're a little bit confusing in their structure, which is why I didn't read them. In verses 16 through 17, in that day... What Isaiah sees coming is that in the day, in Egypt, fear will increase. Fear is going to increase. Now, on the one hand, that fear can be a crippling fear. It can be a deadly fear. It can be a fear because you see your own sin in light of the holiness of God. You know that judgment is coming, and that's it. A fear of that judgment that's coming. But there's another type of fear, right? There's a type of fear that recognizes the same reality. In the eyes of a holy God, I am a sinner who deserves judgment. And there's a fear then that says, can you help? It turns right back to the one and says, can you help me? And, and it's a fear that then is a godly fear because it turns us back to the Lord. In that day, there's going to be fear in Egypt. The next section, uh, so prior, the verse prior to ours in verse 18. In that day as well. In that day, Isaiah sees two other things happening in the land of Egypt. Egypt will speak, and I'm just reading now, the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. Egypt. Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, what do you see happening there? Speaking the language of Canaan is kind of like a reverse babble. Okay, that like, like a babel undone. All of a the sudden, these distanced Egyptians are speaking the language of faith. The language of God's people is being spoken in the midst of Egypt. And in addition to that, 
they are swearing allegiance. Swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. This is, this is and I, I don't mean to take us too far afield, this is covenant language. Okay? This is covenant language. It is the language of vows that are being taken. Of vows that are being taken by the Egyptians in devotion to Israel's God, to the Lord of hosts. So, all right, what we've got then is there's a fear that's going on in Egypt. And in Egypt, we've got a new language being spoken, the language of Canaan, as well as vows that are being made unto the Lord of hosts. That brings us to then the in that day that begins in verse 19, where we begin to fill in this picture, to color it in even a little bit more. Verse 19, in that day, and I'm just going to work, walk us right through this section. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. An altar to the Lord in the midst of Egypt. Wait a minute. I thought that's what made Israel Israel. The fact that the altar to the Lord was in Israel is what makes Israel Israel because it's in the tabernacle. It's in the, the temple. That's where the altar of the Lord is. But Isaiah says, no, no, no. There's a day coming where there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of Egypt itself. A place of reconciliation. A place to which you can go and cry out to help. The altar of the Lord in the midst of Egypt. It continues on uh, from that. And a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. So you've got the, the picture here of the nation of Egypt in the heart of which is now an altar to the Lord and on the border of which is a pillar. A pillar that is standing there as a sign and a witness. Now, again, what you've got here is covenantal language that's going on. This, when we talk about a sign, you're talking covenantal language. The rainbow is the sign of the covenant. When you're talking about a pillar stood up, what you're hearing, what Israel is hearing is, wait a minute, this is us. You're actually describing us here. Think of the end of the book of Joshua. What happens at the end of the book of Joshua? There's a covenant renewal ceremony at the end of Joshua where a stone is set up under the tree next to the altar. And, and so this... What is being described here is what makes Israel, Israel. A pillar now at the border. So the, the heart of it has an altar. The pillar is at the border of Israel. And it continues on from there to describe what else is going on. When they, this is the middle of verse 20 now. When they, they is the Egyptians here, right? When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. That's just an unbelievable statement. You appreciate the irony of this, right? The irony is it's Israel who was in Egypt, who was being oppressed, who cried out to the Lord, and the Lord said, I will send to you a savior and deliver you up and out of Egypt. So, so the very thing that happened to Israel in Egypt is now the thing that's being ascribed to the Egyptians. The Egyptians are going to cry to the Lord because of their oppressors and, and the Lord's going to respond. The Lord himself is going to respond to them. And, and you know, I, I really, if, if we're next to Isaiah, at some point you're kind of tugging on his robe going, I 
think you're mixed up. I think you meant to say Israel, but you're saying Egypt here in these things. You're really talking about us. You're not talking about them. But it continues on. A savior and a deliverer are going to become to coming to Egypt. You've got to be kidding me. God is going then, and, and reading on now into verse 21. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. Now, don't read that too quickly. Remember what we read last week, the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is a knowledge of the Lord that is not just a fact. It's not just a book about the knowledge of the Lord. It's a relationship with the Lord. To, to know the Lord is to be in relationship, in fellowship with the Lord of glory. And this is the very thing that Isaiah had at those verse two verses of the book that I read to you that Isaiah the Lord has against Israel. The ox knows its owners and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And now you're saying, Isaiah, that the Egyptians themselves are going to know the Lord. Uh, John Calvin, when he was pastoring in Geneva, wrote uh, a catechism for the church in Geneva. And the first question of that catechism is uh, very familiar to us. What is the chief end of human life? Okay, that's 1535. It's way before uh, the Westminster standards are written. What is the chief end of human life? The answer is this. To know God by whom men were created. To know God. That's the chief end, as Calvin puts it, to life. Now, let me, let me just to help us to see how extraordinary this is, let me just read us one thing from Psalm 147. In Psalm 147, at the end of the psalm, the psalmist declares this about God. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules, praise the Lord. In other words, what the psalmist is extolling here is the Lord who in particular made himself known covenanted with the people of Israel by which he revealed to them himself his holy law, his rules, his statutes. And he's delighting in that fact. And he's comparing it with other nations who don't know this. None of them have this. And yet here, we're talking about Egyptians knowing the Lord in that day. Yes, that's true for the psalmist, but 700 years later, in that day, in that day, they're going to know. They're going to know. The Egyptians are going to know in that day. And how are they going to express this knowledge? Well, they express this knowledge. They will know the Lord and worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows to the Lord and perform them. Egyptians? Egyptians are going to do that. They're going to engage in this kind of worship. This is uh, for us, again, an extraordinary example of saying this is a, a religion that gets played out in their lives. And then let me just read verse 22 quickly for us. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. He will listen to their pleas for mercy, and he will heal, heal them. The striking isn't just judgment. The striking has now become discipline. And by God's grace, when, Israel, when Egypt is struck, they respond to the discipline of the Lord. 
and they turn to the Lord at that time. There's no stronger language that could be employed to show that true worship and true religion were to come to Egypt. It's old covenant language, right? These are old covenant images of worship, but they are designed to communicate to us the sincerity, the, the fealty, the fidelity of that faith which will exist in Egypt in that day. Verse 23 then begins another in that day. And this time we bring Assyria into the picture. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. There will be a highway between Egypt and Assyria. Egyptians and Assyrians who are themselves enemies will worship together. Now please understand what we're looking at. If imaging in your mind right now is an eight-lane concrete highway running between uh, Cairo and up through Gaza and along Israel's coast and up into Damascus and, and across down into Iraq. That's not the point. That's not the point. It's, it's good to have the image because that's, the images are images. They're designed to communicate something. But the point isn't that there's going to be a road built there. The point is that people who once considered themselves to be enemies of one another as nations are going to be worshiping together. They're going to be in fellowship together as part of every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation worshiping one another, worshiping the Lord and yet worshiping together as well. To which our response sitting around Isaiah is again absolute incredulity. You cannot be serious. That's a John McEnroe reference for the over 50s. You cannot be serious about what is taking place here. You, you, you've got to be just making stuff up. You're just spitballing stuff, Isaiah. There's no way that this is actually going to happen and take place. Then we arrive at the final in that day. Verse 24. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. A threefold blessing is pronounced. A threefold blessing, Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, Israel, my inheritance. Israel's titles, everything that makes Israel, Israel, is being shared. Egypt and Assyria are bedecked. They are clothed in Israel's robes. They are grafted into the root of Jesse, into the one who is beneath the root of Jesse, the one who was the original root of Jesse. They're grafted into that stump, and they're grafted into the branch that is coming out of that stump as well, the shoot that's coming out of it. Egypt and Assyria get grafted into that very thing. If we were next to Isaiah at that point, I think we would simply be speechless. Just speechless. And yet here we are. Here we are, halfway around the world. You are half a world away from these events. 
We're gathered, we're covenanted, we're worshiping, we're full of words of thanks and praise, we're listening to God's word, hearing from the Lord, and knowing the Lord as his word is being spoken to us. Because the Savior and Defender, Jesus Christ, has come and delivered us. You understand this now, right? Egypt and Assyria are representational. They're representational. They represent all of the nations of the earth. They are, in fact, the enemies of God. It is as if the statement was made, I'm going to take the two worst examples and thereby, by taking the two worst, anybody in between. Anybody between Israel and these two worst, you get included in this promise as well. In the midst of all the nations, this word goes out. While we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We deserved judgment. We received instead mercy. That's the message. Three words to take with you. Go, or sorry, come, rejoice, and go. Come, rejoice, and go. The oracles begin in that day. That day was 700 years later. That day began with the coming of the king and will be fulfilled when he comes again. In the meantime, this is the day. This is that day. Right now, this is that day. The highway is open. The borders of the heavenly kingdom are open to all who will trust in Israel's God and in his son, Jesus, to deliver them from sin and judgment and bring them to his worship. The call is to come. That's where we started our worship service. A call to worship, O come, all ye faithful. Come to this place. Come to the Lord. Come to the one whose signal is raised and find life in him. Having arrived then, rejoice. Rejoice and give thanks in the light of the king who is, in fact, a light to the nations. How do you do that? Worship the Lord. It's exactly what we're doing today. Worship the Lord. Make your vows. Membership, baptism, marriage. Make your vows unto the Lord. Swear your allegiance to the Lord. Speak the language of Canaan. You've already done that today. Do you know you've already done that today? That's what the Nicene Creed is. The Nicene, and the other creeds as well. The Nicene Creed is the language of Canaan. And when you say it, when we say it together in this place, we are swearing allegiance to this God. We are saying, this is what we believe together as the people of God. Swear your allegiance. Bring your offering. Present your own bodies as a living sacrifice. Cry out to the Lord in prayer. He will listen to your pleas for mercy and he will heal you. He will heal you. We sang earlier in the service, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Yea and amen. But that's too small. It's too small. 
because you have to sing joy to the world after that. Because it's not only Israel, it's joy to the world that has come. We'll sing it in just a moment. Come, rejoice, and go. The global expansion of the king's reign is the work of the king, of King Jesus. And he works his work through us who are his workmanship. You recognize that? We are his workmanship. Assyria, the work of his hands. You, the work of his hands. You, the my people. You, the ones who are the blessing now in the midst of the earth. You are his workmanship. So go to Egypt. Go to Assyria. Go to the nations. Go to your neighbor. Or if you want to put it in Isaiah language, go tell it on the mountain. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born, that the Messianic King has come, that the day is today. The day of salvation in that day is this day. Great global things have come and keep coming from very small beginnings. The rose air blooming, has bloomed, continues to bloom. So come, rejoice, and go. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you that because this word has been fulfilled, we are in this place today, worshiping you, a gift of your grace. Lord, help us with all of our hearts to rejoice in you, to delight in the opportunity to tell and invite others to come. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.